Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Dogs, Cats Tied to Lower Child Food Allergies by Josh Ulick. Then an article, Study Debunks Claims of Alcohol's Benefits by Julie Warnow. Andy Kessler has an article, Sweet Dreams, Chat GPT. And Peter Funt wrote an article, Curses, Why All the Crude Talk? And we'll follow that up with an article by Bob Green, When Boys, Not Phones, Delivered the News. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Dogs, Cats Tied to Lower Child Food Allergies. Children with dogs and cats in their homes were less likely to develop food allergies than other children, a study recently published shows. The study, led by Dr. Hisayo Okabe of Fushikama Medical University, followed more than 66,000 children who were part of the Japan Environmental and Children's Study. Analyzing questionnaires, researchers tracked pet exposure from prenatal development through early infancy and measured the incidence of allergies in children up to three years old. They found that children living with indoor dogs were less likely to experience egg, milk, and nut allergies. They also determined that children with cats were less likely to have egg, wheat, and soybean allergies. In general, children exposed to pets during both prenatal development and early infancy had lower rates of food allergies than those exposed in only one, only one of these stages. And children living with dogs allowed indoors had lower allergy rates than those with dogs who ate and lived outdoors. The study found that fish, fruit, and buckwheat noodle allergies weren't significantly associated with exposure to pets. Other pets, such as turtles or birds, had no significant association with food allergies. Hamsters, however, were associated with an increased incidence of nut allergies. The journal published in the the study published in the journal PLOS1 builds on previous research, including a recent South African study that found exposure to farm animals during field development or infancy decreased the risk of food and other allergies. The current study is unique in its large sample size, range of pets and foods examined, and in its differentiation between prenatal and postnatal exposure, according to the authors. Food allergies affect more than 5% of United States children, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They can have serious, sometimes life-threatening, consequences. In explaining why pet exposure may affect food allergies, the researchers pointed to the so-called hygiene hypothesis, which says that contact with bacteria and other microbes, including from animals, 
may be essential for building a healthy immune system. Having pets in the house might inoculate the GI tract of babies and lead to a more tolerant immune response that is less sensitive to allergens, some researchers have suggested. Pet exposure may increase abundance of certain microbes as well as contribute to the diversity of gut bacteria, which is possibly associated with lower rates of allergic disease, Dr. Okabe said. Dr. Edwin Kim, Chief of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, noted that food allergy rates are higher in the developed world where disinfectants and other modern conveniences may limit our exposure to microbes. Are we too clean, not challenging our immune systems the way they should be, he asked. The authors noted several caveats to the study, including that they didn't test children directly for allergies, but rather relied on doctors' diagnosis reported by parents. Dr. Kim, who was not involved in the research, praised the study's large sample size, but noted its subjects were limited to Japan, whose unique genetic or environmental characteristics might not apply to other countries. A new, large-scale National Institutes of Health-sponsored United States birth cohort study called Sunbeam which is examining early risk factors for allergies, including environmental exposures, may provide results that confirm and expand on the current study, he said. And now, study debunks claims of alcohol's benefits. First, the good news. A sip of alcohol here and there probably won't kill you but it won't help you live longer either. For a study published in the journal JAMA Network Open, researchers set out to make sense of years of conflicting evidence on alcohol's effect on health. Some research suggested that drinking alcohol improves life expectancy. Other studies had demonstrated poorer health outcomes at any level of drinking. The researchers analyzed 107 studies on the effect of alcohol in nearly 5 million people and found that no amount of alcohol consumption led to longer life than among people who never drank. People who drank 45 grams of alcohol more a day, about as much as in three glasses of wine, increased their risk of dying sooner by as much as a third. Among women, Anything more than 25 grams of alcohol increased their risk of dying sooner. Alcohol is linked to more than 200 diseases. You would be bored by the time I finished naming them all, said Jürgen Rim, senior scientist at Canada's Center for Addiction and Mental Health, who wasn't involved in the study. The findings suggest that the average man can drink up to about three drinks a day and expect to live as long as non-drinkers. Women might want to stop at about two drinks, the research suggested. The new study joins a body of evidence that alcohol does more harm than good. Health officials in Canada this year recommended that people have two drinks or fewer a week to lower health risks. That replaced guidance that 10 drinks a week was a low health risk. 
rates of death involving alcohol in the United States rose a record 25% during the pandemic in 2020 and an additional 10% in 2021, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Per capita alcohol consumption, measured as gallons of pure alcohol per person, rose 2.9% in 2020, the largest increase in more than 50 years. Amanda Berger, a vice president at the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, a trade association, said alcohol is a lifestyle choice with risks and benefits. Alcohol can be a part of a balanced diet for most adults, she said. Tim Stockwell, director of the Canada Institute for Substance Use Research and an author of the new study, said many studies demonstrating health benefits from alcohol consumption were poorly conducted. For their review, he and his colleagues adjust for recurring flaws in much of that research. Many studies counted people who had stopped drinking after years of heavy consumption with people who had never had a sip of alcohol. Comparing people who had stopped drinking because of health concerns with moderate drinkers made moderate drinkers look healthier. Dr. Stockwell called it the sick-quitter effect. Some studies didn't account for occasional drinkers who have outgrown the party life, another factor that would make heavier drinkers, who tend to be younger and have fewer chronic health problems, look healthier. Other studies only followed people's drinking patterns for a few days and extrapolated the findings to their health outcomes 30 years in the future. We can't remove the effect of all those bad studies in a meta-analysis, he said, but we can bat it down a bit. Kevin Shield, a scientist who works with the World Health Organization in Toronto to track the effect of alcohol consumption around the world, said that while less appears to be the best, scientists can identify genes that can affect a person's susceptibility to the ill effects of alcohol. Genes that contribute to an inability to metabolize alcohol are also related to lower cardiovascular risk, he said. Some people with genes that are associated with flushing red when they drink are at higher risk of some cancers, he said. People with higher tolerance are also at higher risk for alcohol dependence and cardiovascular disease, genetics research shows. We are discovering tons of new genes that track with alcohol, he said. And now, Sweet Dreams, chat GPD, GPT. I had a weird dream last night. I'm sure you've said that many times. But why? From Sigmund Freud to Carl Jung to Calvin Hall, Dreams have been researched ad nauseum, and there's still no good answer to what shapes them. Unconscious desires, keeping neurons active, memory consolidation, psychosexual wish fulfillment, no one knows. Even Freud supposedly noted, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But clues are starting to emerge from artificial intelligence and its use of brain-mimicking neural networks. In 1968, Philip K. Dick published the article 
in a novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, on which the 1982 movie Blade Runner was based? Turns out the answer is yes. First, a quick and oversimplified primer on neural networks. They contain digital layers of interconnected nodes modeled on the human brain's neurons and synapse connections, which are great at finding patterns. Based on numerical weightings in each node after scanning millions of photos, a layer might conclude that a roundish object with eyes, nose, and mouth is a face. Then that data moves on to the next layer, which looks for patterns in those patterns. Perhaps it determines whether it's a cat's or dog's face. Then another layer finds patterns of patterns of patterns until, for example, it can identify the dog's breed as a Siberian Husky, and so on. Theorized in 1943, trainable neural networks have been around since 1958 when psychologist Frank Rosenblatt demonstrated the perceptron machine at the Cornell Aeronautical Laboratory. But only in the past decade has AI scaled to the masses and gained the ability to understand your voice or recognize faces in photos. What changed? Faster processors and cheaper memory certainly helped, but neural networks in the past often got stuck by overfitting data to a conclusion, such as determining that everything with feline-shaped eyes is a cat, or concluding that dinosaurs built Stonehenge. We do that, too, when we knock on wood or wear our lucky socks because our team won last time we did. Computers can be superstitious like us. In 1970, Finnish student Seppo Linamama proposed back propagation, again oversimplifying here, sending errors backward through neural network layers to generalize the weightings and better find patterns. It wasn't until a 1986 paper, Learning Representations by Back-Propagating Errors, whose co-authors included Geoffrey Hinton, a patriarch of neural network research, that back-propagation research took off. It took another 20 years for the method to scale which is why voice and facial recognition artificial intelligence work well today. Now the current theories. In 2020, neuroscientist Eric Cole, then a professor at Tufts University, postulated that human brains get stuck overfitting in the same way and need to generalize to overcome the problem. Mr. Hall suggests the brain does that by having wild, crazy experiences every night. He hypothesized that dreams as a form of purposely corrupted input likely derived from noise injected into the hierarchical structure of the brain. Sound familiar? Yes, maybe dreams are back propagation that inject noise and errors to unfit or generalize our own pattern recognition. That would explain why our dreams are so weird. Mr. Hull even writes that maybe... Fictions, like novels or films, act as artificial dreams, accomplishing at least some of the same function of injecting noise and errors. 
Not a bad reason to watch all 31 films and counting in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe someday virtual reality will partially replace weird dreams and cure sleep deprivation. Another problem for neural networks is catastrophic forgetting as new data overwrite old information. A research paper by Maxim Bazanov, a sleep researcher at the University of California San Diego Medical School, notes, the human brain learns continuously and incorporates new data into existing knowledge, which is best when new training is interleaved with periods of sleep for memory consolidation. He posits that the same is true for AI neural networks. They learn better when they get some sleep. Perhaps this is why Microsoft limits its Bing chat box to 20 replies. The early word on chat GPT-4, the latest itineration, is that it's more accurate but not very creative. Maybe it needs a good night's sleep. Between overfitting and catastrophic forgetting, our brains need to incorporate new experiences with old memories without forgetting the past. I once heard chess champion Magnus Carlsen tell the story of playing against his younger self in an old chess app he released years ago. He said it was a bit surreal but fascinating to see how far he has come. And maybe that's why we dream. Not to erase old memories, but to de-emphasize and fine-tune them so we can mature and progress. With chat, GPT, and AI research, we're going to learn a lot more about ourselves. Sweet dreams. Curses. Why all the crude talk? I'm at a loss for words to explain the growing use of coarse language in everyday conversation. When friends or colleagues use the F-word, or matter-of-factly, as my parents said, gosh or golly, it makes me cringe, but I seem to be part of a bleeping minority. I thought about this while watching the comedy series Shrinking on Apple TV+, starring Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford as therapists practicing in Pasadena, California. Every character, including Mr. Siegel's teenage daughter, uses the F-word with startlingly casual frequency. In a recent 29-minute episode, these well-educated, affluent Southern Californians said the word 30 times, including nine utterances by Mr. Siegel. Are the producers trying to titillate viewers by writing foul language into dialogue where, in real life, it wouldn't be likely to occur? Or are they accurately depicting a linguistic trend? There isn't much reliable research on how often Americans swear. A 2022 survey of 1,500 residents of 30 major United States cities found that they swore on average of 21 times a day, but it certainly seems that many Americans swear that much more frequently than that. At a minimum, it's safe to say that Americans are swearing more than ever before. Many assumptions about cursing, for instance, that it correlates with lack of education, are apparently wrong. Timothy J., author of six books on language 
and Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, said, People have better vocabularies, which is related to intelligence and education, are better at swearing. Moreover, the use of taboo words helps with coping, storytelling, and fitting in socially. We're the only animal that evolved to do this, said Professor Jay. If it wasn't useful, it would become obsolete. Science has actually given a name to the benefits of swearing, lalochesia. It refers to the emotional relief gained from using profane speech. As far as I know, however, there is no term for the discomfort that many of us suffer when friends and colleagues pepper conversation with words that seem relate more to their quest for social liberation than to communication. I asked Sophia McLennan, a professor at Penn State University who specializes in culture, politics, and society, why cursing seems to be more prevalent nowadays. It has to do in large part with the casual forms of communication that take place on social media that have increasingly infiltrated more traditional news, broadcasting, and other forms of what you might think of as more serious speech, she explained. The lines between casual and serious speech have blurred, and that hybrid has influenced a lot of more formal spaces of communication. She added that a culture of uncivil discourse, which might be called S-T-T talking, is becoming more common. But both she and Professor Jay were quick to note that cursing is prevalent across society. With privilege comes power and the ability to break rules, he said. Donald Trump is a good example of that, as are a lot of executives and politicians. As Vice President, Joe Biden famously used the F-word when congratulating President Obama on completing the 2010 health care legislation. Mr. Obama's 2016 appearance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner included a video in which he jokingly says, F you to NBC's Chuck Todd. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Mr. Obama conceded, I curse more than I should, and I find myself cursing more in this office than I had in my previous life. Politico has reported that President Biden swears frequently in staff meetings, favoring the F-word. A study conducted last summer by the company Word Tips used Twitter feeds to assess which parts of the country swear the most and which words they favor. It turns out that Georgians curse with the greatest frequency, followed closely by residents of Maryland and New Mexico. The least swearing takes place in Minnesota, where the curse of choice is hell. No surprise, the F word is the nation's most popular curse, followed by S blank T. The F word is most popular on the West Coast, as well as in the Texas and parts of the Northeast. Folks have always liked the daring nature of dirty dialogue, as comic George Carlin confirmed in his famous 1972 routine, seven words you can never say on television. My father, Alan Funt, tried to capitalize on this during his earliest days producing the television show Candid Camera, circa 
1950. He would occasionally bleep a clean word, making it seem as if something crude had been said. Audiences howled, but as soon as network executives caught on, they put a stop to it. One thing I've learned since taking over Candid Camera decades ago is that average people don't curse as much as you might think, at least when speaking with strangers, which is the case in most of our vignettes. That suggests to me that foul language is usually controllable, and therefore, in other settings, its inclusion is often contrived. Interestingly, the sequence that produced the most swearing was one in which people were alone, or thought they were, inserting a dollar bill into a change machine and getting back 100 pennies. Their shocked utterances set a record for bleeps on candid camera. I view the use of expletives as a sign of carelessness, much the same as dressing sloppily. Crude language bothers me most when I hear it from people who I know could do better if they cared to try. So, what about the characters in Shrinking? Are they actually reflecting the behavior of Southern California professionals, or are they just pandering to the streaming audience? I googled therapists in Pasadena and picked one at random from a rather long list. Jim Jacobson's website that he specializes in treating intellectually and created gifted individuals. I asked him if he uses the F word a lot. Yes, he said. When I'm starting up with a new client, I mention that I curse like a sailor, and if that's not okay, I will try to curb it. No one has ever objected. I'm fond of strong impressions, and it's certainly not always about anger. I guess people have decided to quit pretending that we're some kind of polite society, Dr. Jacobson continued. Is cursing therapeutic? I believe it is, he said. It's part of my being genuine, which is one of the most important things I can do. According to Professor J, people with a rich vocabulary, educated people, treat language like owning a lot of different styles of clothing. You change for whatever the context is. A regular viewer of Shrinking, he offered this analysis. Each flawed character in the series who openly swears It's a deep underlying problem with depression, anger, or fear that is unspeakable. Taboo words are the speakable taboos, and mental disorders and problems are the unspeakable ones. That's why we have therapy to dig beneath the speakable taboos. I'll keep watching shrinking, even though I find the gratuitous cursing to be an annoying distraction. But if I ever need a therapist... I'm looking for one in Minnesota. And now, when boys, not phones, delivered the news. I'm no stamp collector, but there is a three-cent first-class stamp issued in 1952 that I keep in a frame on a bookshelf. The post office department authorized this stamp to honor what the nation considered an essential job. The rectangular stamp, light purple in color, depicts houses in a typical small town. Against that backdrop is an illustration of a boy with a canvas bag slung over one shoulder. The stamp's inscription reads, In recognition of the important service 
rendered their communities and their nation by America's newspaper boys. I look at that stamp every time there is another news story about the declining circulation of print papers, even as digital circulation grows. Newspaper boys and girls were a vital part of the American landscape in the decades before the Internet and cable news delivered up to the second bulletins onto people's screens. Today, print papers mostly are delivered by adults in cars. But that purple stamp celebrated the era when the speediest way of getting news to front doors was a boy on a bike. How ingrained in the nation's life was that boy? One proud former newspaper boy, Dwight D. Eisenhower, issued a statement from the White House in 1954 honoring the carrier's not only because they serve our daily family needs, but because they symbolize so many cherished American ideals. When Eisenhower mentioned daily family needs, he wasn't being hyperbolic. In 1950, the penetration of American households by newspapers, a statistic measuring in how many homes a newspaper was read each day, was just above 120%. How could the number exceed 100%? Many homes subscribe to two papers, a morning and an evening one. Part of Newspaper Boy's regular duties was to collect by hand, each week or each month, the subscription fees from every home on their route. During World War II, they raised money for the nation's defense by selling war bonds and war stamps as they made their rounds. In appreciation, the United States Treasury commissioned a poster featuring a GI in combat gear shaking the hands of a newspaper boy. Thanks, buddy, the poster proclaimed. Newspaper boys have sold over one and one quarter billion war saving stamps since Pearl Harbor. Some states bestowed annual awards on newspaper boys or girls for exemplary work. In Ohio, the award was considered so prestigious that it was presented by either the governor or the chief justice of the state Supreme Court. In 1954, the Bowling Green Sentinel Tribune explained to its readers that the newspaper boy completes the job started by the reporter in far-off Asia, the photographer in Africa, the correspondent in Alaska. But the job is a long way from being finished until the newspaper is in your home. For some of us who love this business, there is still no sweeter sound than the solid thump of a rolled up paper hitting the front stoop. The future may be digital, but to that hard-working newspaper boy on the three-cent stamp, with gratitude and respect across all the years, here's to you. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.